What's up, y'all? This is Crystal Clear Roberson. I'm a film and TV director, and you're listening to Studio Noise. Yes, yes, it's the noise. You know what the noise is, right? It's the sound of creation. When that brush hit the canvas, when that pencil hit that paper, that sound, that's expression. And right there, wherever you find that sound in the studio, you're going to find black folks in there making that noise, in there making all this good art that we love so much. And that's what we talk about right here. On the Studio Noise Podcast, it is me, your boy, Jay Barber. I'm a printmaker, grad student, professor of the arts. (laughs) I love it. Extreme art lover. So that's why I love giving y'all these great contemporary art, black art conversations. And Studio Noise is supported by MBAF. MBAF has been supporting the arts for over 30 years, uh, giving out grants, having festivals, doing all the things that we need behind the scenes. We sure do appreciate and we appreciate them making this podcast possible so this year the mbaf is doing something new they having the art of giving benefit banquet is a virtual event uh, and in that event they'll be having their inaugural horizon awards honoring people making incredible art in film and visual arts and music and you know studio noise committed to highlighting and archiving the voices of the contemporary black art world and we're proud to bring you these conversations with the winners of the Horizon Awards and a few of the judges, you know, kick in just for good measure. <laughs> and so it's always good to hear from these people that's doing big things, the people that deserve this honor. You know, we like to hear from them uh, as they're making this stuff. So this is a special episode for you. And you can go back and check out all the episodes of Studio Noise. We've got 100 episodes so far. we got a huge archive of people. We talked to all the artists that you want to hear from, uh, all the big time names, you know, Deborah Roberts, Lisa Butler, Alpha Conte, Charlie Palmer, all the greats. We talk to them all, but we also bring you a couple of people that you may not know, right? That you need to know, you know, people that's here right here in Atlanta, like Eugene Byrd, like Melissa Alexander, like Natrice Miller, like all these, all these great names uh, out here making good art. And I think that's what we like and what we, what we want to support. So head on over to Studio Noise website at studionoisepodcast.com. Check us out on IG at Studio Noise Podcast. And by all means, check out all the great work we've been doing over the last two years. And it's all for you, all the black art lovers out there. This podcast, you can come and learn about all your favorite artists and much, much more. We talk about so much. We get into it. The motivations, the inspirations to keep you going. And that's the noise, baby. On this episode, we get to talk to one of the judges from the NBAF Horizon Awards. This one from film. We got television and movie director, Miss Crystal C. Robeson, Crystal Clear Productions on the episode right here. You've seen her do stuff in, on Greenleaf and Ambitions. She did a whole lot of stuff. So we get to know her a little bit right here on Studio Noise. It's the noise, baby. Right after the break, Miss Crystal C. Robeson on the noise. Yes, it's your boy Jay Barber, back with more Studio Noise. Uh, of course, we're doing our special episodes, helping represent for NBAF and their inaugural Horizon Award. And we've talked to a few of the winners, but now we get the special opportunity to talk to some of the judges, in particular this woman right here, who's quite amazing and, and, and accomplished in her own right. Uh, she was the one of the judges for the film category. And we're talking to Crystal Clear Robeson right here on Studio Noise. How you doing, Crystal? Hello, I'm doing wonderful. How are you today? Oh, uh, we're good. We're good. We're we're glad to be talking to you. Uh, first and foremost, I got to tell you one: me and my wife are just starting to binge Greenleaf on Netflix. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's good. It's something to get to talk to you right now. My sister's been raving about it for so long, but we're getting to it. 
So, you know, can't wait to get to your episodes and, and see how you're really getting down. Yeah, thank you. No, um, yeah, definitely binge it. It's, it's, it's very addictive, just a warning. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love so, it, yeah. once you get started, just be ready to, to go all the way through because <laughs> <laughs> things keep happening. Yeah, that's for sure. Leaf Mansion, for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. So I'm, I'm really liking it. So it's like, I think it's one of the things where, um, you know, I consume a lot of black media just because I love black people and, and black people telling black stories. So, of course, mm-hmm. I've been stumbling on your work without even knowing it. So that's a, like a great thing. But uh, before we get into that and before we start talking about you in, in particular, I want to talk a little bit about the panel for judging the film category for NBAF Rising Awards. And, you know, say some a little something about why y'all chose Simone Baptiste with her movie sixteen thousand dollars as the winner yeah you know um it was really 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 tough um because so much great talent applied and we saw some really great films um you know but um there was something about simone's project because um it was it you know it was well done well directed and um it was, you know, it had the levity, it had the comedy, it had the drama, um, and it spoke to a very real uh, part of of black culture, um, a very a very timely, you know, kind of uh, subject for black culture. Yeah. And you know, one thing that we were one thing that we were uh, um, asked to do as judges, we were asked to. Like not only just focus on the the filmmakers that were that did a great job and who were obviously talented because they're all very talented. We were we were faced with picking the person who we feel like could go on in 2020, 2021 and and start working and really, you know, have something to say, you know, to the world. And Simone's just kind of stood out as that as that person, um, you know, and, and like I said, it was a tough decision because so many of them are so talented. All of them were so talented that it was like, wow. Yeah. Um, but like me being a working director and understanding the, the, the type of work that's going to get you hired and, um, that's going to allow you to start, you know, really making money and moves in the industry. Um, Simone's work was that for me, you know, and, um, and we had a long discussion about it. It was something that we all got on the phone about, you know, got on yeah. Zoom about. You know, it wasn't just like a blind, um, okay, this person gets this many points and that person gets that many points, so they win. It was a real live, heartfelt, hash-out discussion, you know. And um, and Simone just came out on top. So congratulations. That's for sure. To her and all of the filmmakers. That's for sure, yo. So we gotta gotta make sure we gotta gotta shout her out um, for getting mm-hmm. getting to this point and, and making her movies. We so look forward to everything that she's gonna do, like in the future. Like, it's always great to hear yeah. these black voices, and, and of course, it just feels like it's a moment where black women are just starting to get their due, like in in these spaces. And so I love it to see like yeah. uh, this fresh new talent come up. Absolutely, absolutely. And so you yourself yeah. are. A director, a writer, you're the founder of CCR Storyhouse, which I do want to talk about uh, a lot because I appreciate that mentorship um, part of it. But I want to start talking with you about what makes a good movie, in your opinion. Um, there's a lot of different components that go into making a good movie. Ever, I think I think that honestly, one of the main things overall is like you want your audience to just believe you. You want them to, when they sit down to watch your movie, you just want them to believe it. You want them to make believe with you. Um, you know, and I think that's one of the most important things in in uh, film, television, theater. You know, you just want the audience fully involved in, in, in believing what you're doing. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of components that go into creating that type of environment or uh, that type of experience for your audience. 
Um, you know, so, you know, whether it's your shot selections, your actors' performances, you know, the music, the lighting, the sound, you know, all of those things, all, all they're doing is trying to be as believable as possible so that your audience can just go on this ride with you and suspend their belief for a little while. Um, and so for me as a filmmaker, you know, I analyze all of that stuff anytime I watch, uh, anytime I watch anything. But when I know that a show or a movie is really, really good to me is when I just stop analyzing it and I'm just experiencing and I'm playing make believe. Right. And you're there with um, them. Yeah. And I'm there with them. And I'm like, yeah, this person is real that, you know, these characters are real. This place is real. And when I can just believe it, then I feel like that's what makes a really good movie, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah. But all the components that go into that are, you know, so many in filmmaking, of course, um, you know, every, a lot of things have to be on point in order for, I mean, the costumes, the props, all of it has to make, to make sense in that world um, for you to believe it. And kind of so, all those balls are in the air with you in the middle of it. So how do you, as a director, like, what is it when you get a script and you can read it and analyze it and you, do you just know in that time or, or is it a decision that you come to as you're, as you're building out the cast, uh, picking the sets and all this kind of stuff? How do you manage to hold all those balls in the air and keep it together like that? Well, it's really, um, it's really about being human first. Um, you got to just be human first and just feel it, you know, because humans, we go, we wake up every day um, and we're faced with different choices and different things are happening in the world and they make us all feel different sorts of ways. So like first, when, when I, whenever I read a script for the first time, I just feel it. I just allow myself to feel it. I try not to, it's hard sometimes, but I, I try not to read it as a director mm, or as right. a writer. There you go. Yeah. I just read it as a human, you know, I read it as a woman, I read it as a black woman. Um, and I just feel it. And I jot down the, the places that I felt something. I laughed here. I almost cried there. This part made me mad. Mm. This part confused me. And I just write those those um, emotional sort of that it's like an emotional map really and um, and that's what separates the way that I the way that I will read a script and direct it from another young woman who would read a script and direct it because right, um, right. she has different emotions she has different reactions and different responses and different experiences yeah exactly different experiences in her life um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, that's what sort of makes us different. Um, but then when I go into di actually directing it and I have to explain uh, things to the all of my different department heads, the cast and the crew, um, I just remember my emotional map. And I know kind of like, OK, if we're going to build up to laughter at this moment, Here's what I need to have happen. Mm. And everything that they present you with, every choice that you're presented with, you got to be in touch with your feelings. You have to be in touch with the way that it makes you feel and see if it really sort of um, and, and, and make sure that it um, goes hand in hand with your original e emotional map. Um, that's how you kind of make sure that it's not all over the place and right. that you're not just doing it just to be doing it. It's like, no, this is the feeling that I'm going for here. This is the tone of what I'm going for right here. And, and, and from there, you know, if you know that you want, um, if you know that you felt sad on a certain part and you almost cried, then your costume designer comes in with this really, bright colorful happy sweater <laughs> yeah. for your for your character to be in you're like no that's not the right sweater you know she's she's not feeling like that right now you know yeah um and that's how you know and you just make your decision based off of based off of that that's how i do it you know because at the end of the day that's all i have is my is my uh my experiences 
you know, and the way that things impact me, you know, um, at, at my core, that's all I really have. And then I just have to make sure that that translates through every decision I make in the movie, um, you know. Yeah. So and, and I'm a yeah. visual artist and a lot of people we've interviewed have been visual artists, like in terms of like painting, printmaking, like making stuff on that level. So it sounds to me oh, like cool. you're doing kind of the same thing that we do when we're creating a painting or something where uh, I think you have your initial um, emotional reaction to it. I think you feel like it's true. And I think that you're trying to keep to that core of it and never lose sight of like your how you felt in the beginning as a viewer yeah. with fresh eyes. So, you know, because as you keep analyzing stuff and you're looking at a painting constantly every single day, you kind of can can get caught up in, yeah. the, in the method of it <laughs> instead of like keeping it uh, like you were saying, your initial reaction is the true reaction of how a person will really it experience is. it. Yeah. And, and and what you just said, how a person will really experience it. And it, because when you do art that, uh, especially entertainment art, where you, there's an audience who's going to come in and view it, you have to stand in for that audience and you have to understand like the way that they feel. Your audience isn't a bunch of filmmakers. Often, mm, yeah. it's, it's not a bunch of industry people. It's not a bunch of people who think just like you. They're regular, everyday, beautiful, ordinary folks who just like watching TV or like watching movies. They're, 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 you know, their fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, you know, grandmamas. Um, some people, a lot of people, just they, they are real people um, who feel things, and I think. You know, that's really important as industry people who are often always around other industry folks. And we live in this world of, you know, we walk on set and we're making movies every day. Right, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. that's all well and good. But there's a part of you that has to be in touch with what real people are going through every day um, in order for like once they see your work, they need to be able to feel it. You know what I mean? They need to be able to, to believe it. Um, so I always try to start there and always keep those people in mind. Um, because like you said, you could get caught up in the method of it and trying to do some cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But like at you the know, end of the day, what's gonna really impact your audience, you know? Yeah, that's super true. And I in at that point, uh that you, as you were talking made me think of the short film that you have, the end game with my man Columbus Short. Big shout out to Columbus Short. He's one of my favorites. Um, yeah. So, yeah. like, but, but as I'm watching this, it's only, I don't know, what is it, 15 minutes or something like that? But there's only two people in it and kind of going through this breakup and she's leaving. But it was something so raw about it. Like, as I was watching it, like, I felt like the last time I broke up, even though I've, I've been with my wife for, you know, 15 years. So, it, not Beautiful. me in particular, but <laughs> way back yeah. in the day in another lifetime when you used to break mm -hmm. up with people, like, I felt that emotion. As if it just happened. And I think that is the beauty of mm. film. Like, I think that that one, you definitely hit out the park and got, got you captured the essence of what it means to be torn apart. You know what I'm saying? In a relationship. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And I've been through that before. I've been through breakups before. And uh, my actors, uh, Columbus Short, that was his, his then um, wife. They... They were the special thing about that movie. They were going through some hard times at the time in their relationship. And um, I think that they divorced not too long after that. Mm. So they were going through like an actual break apart at the time that we shot that movie. And um, I think it, it I think the beauty of that, though, is that it helped both of them kind of uh, come to a sense of closure you know, just in making the film, um, I think it helped them to process it in a certain way. Right. Um, I was nervous as a director uh, directing a breakup movie with with two people who were, you know, experiencing issues in their relationship. I felt some kind of way just doing that. And um, so you it knew about really it kind of at the time. Process. So you knew about yeah, it. I knew as about you were? it. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I knew about it at the time. It was no secret. They made they they made it no secret mm. um that they were going through some issues, but I think that uh they both had really good intentions on you know, they were hoping that some doing something like that would sort of help them process 
the relationship in a certain way and and come back together. Um, so it was a that, that was a really special movie, really special short film um, written by Felicia Pride and um, produced by Letitia Fortune. And they pulled me in just to direct it because they had uh, another feature film that they wanted to to do. Uh, they had a feature film they wanted to do, but they were like, well, let's make it as a short film first and go ahead and kind of bring these characters to life. And so they tapped me to direct it and we we shot it in Atlanta, Georgia um, over two days in Atlanta. So, um, so yeah, it was a really special movie in that right. Um, but I think that that's why you could feel it so well because the actors, as well as myself, um, had all kind of been through that before they were going through it at the time. And so it was just really strong in the room, you know? Oh yeah. So, yeah. I'm, I'm sure y'all could feel yeah. that vibe because, uh, cause I felt it as a, as a viewer and this is, I mean, how old is this thing? It's like, it's past five years old. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, so me feeling it now is still, I'm flashing back to, you know, 20 years ago <laughs> and I'm still feeling it. It's something about, it was so, so many, uh, and I'll ask you about this, like what the, the subtle ways that you communicate that you can communicate with film. And so uh, it was a lot of moments where it was kind of like the scenes where she was by herself and then she would walk over to him and and touch him on the shoulder. and He would walk away like all this stuff. Is that all that stuff playing in the script? Like, how does it how do you get that that raw feeling in those moments as you as you're just taking video? Yeah, some of it is some of it is in the script and then some of it is discovered in the rehearsals. Um mm, okay. and that's and that's something that I always like to leave room for when I'm directing is um discovery, you know, um cuz you know, you can what's what's on the page is on the page, but there are things between the lines too mm. that aren't necessarily written but they're there. And then once you actually have two people um, like going through the script, going through the motions, they start to feel it and they start to discover, well, okay, here, I feel like I want to reach out for him or I feel like I want to touch him on the shoulder or something, you know, like, so the actors will start to discover things in rehearsal or like I'll start to, when I actually, cause it's one thing to read your script over and over again um, and imagine it in your head, but it's not until you have live people in front of you in the space, right. you know, yeah, yeah. Um, in the space that you're going to, that you're about to shoot in going through it and you start to feel it and re- and it comes to life. And then you start to make discoveries that way. So, um, so, you know, I think that like, I used to feel like, Oh my goodness, everything has to be planned and, everything has to be perfect, but you got to kind of let things go a little bit so that you can discover the special moments and not be afraid when things start to go like not completely as planned or as it is in the script all the time, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like know, you have to I have a great, yeah. yeah it sounds like you have to have a tremendous trust in the actors, you know what I'm saying? In, in, in mm-hmm. having them be able to do, that kind of thing as a natural, not, um, you know, jumping out the box or jumping the shark kind of thing where it's like, you know, they're overacting or doing something like you got to trust the, the subtlety of, of your people. So I guess that comes down to like casting decisions and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But you, but you're setting the mood <laughs> yeah. too. You're like you're putting it together to bring this room together. So it's not like it's not happening by accident, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and casting is everything. I know some people say casting is 90% of the movie. Um, but like casting does is very, very important. Um, and I do trust my actors. I love to collaborate with actors in a certain way um, where I allow them to just be free and kind of like channel the, the, the character, you know, on their own. And um you know, I'm not a director who tells them what to do or tells them how to act or tells them like anything. Um, I'll tell them where we're putting the camera and I'll tell them the best place to kind of position sometimes so that we can see what they're doing. But what they're doing 
is up to them. It's their interpretation of right. the work. And um and I and you know, and and if if there's a certain performance that's 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 not really hitting or coming across, I'll just ask them more questions. Well, how does how does this character feel right now about this? And you know, what do they usually do in moments like this? And what's different about right now? And, you know, just ask them questions. And most of the time they'll answer their own sort of, they'll come up with their own sort of like discovery. Like, oh, you know what? I'm going to try this in this next take. Um, and I'm like, yeah, you know, um, or I'll say, you know, well, how is he feeling? He's like, well, you know, he's a little nervous because, such and such is happening. I'm like, you know, okay, he's nervous, but I can't really, I'm not really seeing the nervousness. Mm. Um, you know, it's not really picking up. Like, do you want to play that out? Like, and then we, we might come up with some ideas like, like maybe if I have you fixing tea, you can take your nervousness out on the tea mm. or, you know, you don't yeah. have to sit there fidgeting nervous. Like we can come up with something else for you to do that where you can express that behavior. Because um, it's important for, for the audience to know how you feel right now, you know, or if or if they're nervous, but, you know, they're they're walking through the shot in a way that I can't see their eyes or I can't see their face. You know, I may as a director say, OK, can cameras here? Can you do can you find a way to do that facing more towards camera or can you can you walk this way and do that instead? Right. But I'm never you know, I'm never telling them how to feel or how to well, what word to say a certain way. Like I I don't do stuff like that. You yeah. know, I just let I like to trust them. And I feel like most of the time I get better performances that way because the actor feels free. They're confident. They feel safe. They're not acting, trying to come up with some sort of result of what they think I want. Is that what you want? You know, um, it's not like that. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm not look. I don't want people to feel like I'm looking for some specific thing and they have to find it and guess what that is. And, you know, that's no way to act. That's yeah. no way to uh, create, you know. So, uh, so, yeah, I like to trust them and be collaborative with them. But you got to cast the right people first that you're able to do that with, you know? Absolutely. And I think, well, another, bring up another movie, The Black Cage, where you, you know, you have my man, McKelty Williamson in it. Uh, love McKelty yeah. Williamson. <laughs> you work with all these people that I absolutely love. But, uh, <laughs> but that, that movie is another movie where there's not really dialogue. Like, it's all like him and kind of the response to him feeling, and it, and it has like this kind of Twilight Zone type of feel to it, which is different than, than, I think some of the yeah. other projects. And so, mm -hmm. so in, in approaching that movie with such a sparse, I, 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 I see it as sparse um, script. Yeah. Like, yeah. How are you able to like manifest that kind of emotion? Cause you can still feel and talk about trusting your actors. He did a great job of like showing like confusion oh, and anxiety. Goodness. And then he was happy and then he was confused and then he like got resolute and got back in the cage. Like it was crazy. It was, it was really great. So um, talk about that one a little bit. Well, you know, I mean, listen, man, Michael T. Williamson is a master at his craft. And I was completely blown away when he told me that he would work with me on the Black Cage. I was completely like, are you kidding me? Um, OK, great. You know, <laughs> so, but um, but, you know, I think that like that piece was such a it was such a psychological piece. Um, that he he just already knew the different psychological beats he wanted to play. And, um, you know, I just sort of put the camera where it needed to be in order to tell the story. Um, but yeah, I mean, we just put Michael T in there and in that cage and just let him do his thing. Yeah. Honestly. Because he's so he's so good at it. He was so good at interpreting uh, the material and working with an actor like that at the stage that I was at as a as a younger filmmaker. That, I think that was like 2008 or 2009. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a, that was a minute ago. And so I was still learning a lot working with an actor of that caliber. Um, but he he taught me a lot about like allowing your actors to interpret the material and how 
when you let them do it, you just get results more likely way beyond what you could have ever imagined. Um, so yeah, with the black cave, it was definitely a, it was actually based on a dream that I had. Um, I had this dream about, yeah, I had this dream about, um, this person in this cage, uh, waking up and not really knowing how they got there and finding the key. But I didn't know how I wanted to end it. And and I remember being at lunch with one of my good friends um, and saying like, hey, you know, I just don't know how to end it. I want to make this a movie, but I don't know how it ends. It's like, what would you do if you had a key to your own cage? And, you know, we just we just talked about all the different scenarios. And I was like, yeah, a lot of times people would just stay in the cage because that's the safest <laughs> Yeah. place yeah. to be uh, even though it's miserable and it's limiting and all of that stuff it's still safe and at least you know that you're the one with the key so um, you know so it was it was just interesting kind of like coming up with that whole like psychological piece but the but you know I viewed the black cage as like I, I knew at the time I was like look I'm a young filmmaker I was like I probably will never get to make a movie like this again um, <laughs> so let's make it right. now you know yeah. I was like let's make it now because like it's extremely like experimental and uh like you said kind of twilight zone-ish and I was like yeah let's like, this is the perfect time to to make this movie you know. So as a director, do you do you have like a like a way that you're visioning yourself, like visualizing yourself in like in terms of genre, like in terms of or do directors think like that? Like, uh, you know, I don't know if Michael Bay said for sure, but he's a big budget action summer blockbuster type of dude. I don't know if that's how you see yourself or forever. <laughs> but do you see yourself as a particular genre uh, that you're trying to get to and master? Well, like it's interesting you say that because I know the um, I know the types of stories that I'm naturally drawn to, mm-hmm. um, and you know, but like I know the stories I'm I'm naturally drawn to, but like I haven't put myself in any particular, you know, I guess box or definition because like. I'm still, I think I'm still trying to kind of find wh- where I really belong in that, right? Uh, a lot of my early films were sci-fi films. Like a lot of my short films were sci-fi and like the Black Cage and stuff like that. But then later, you know, like when I did The End Again, that was a, that was a romantic, that was a, you know, a, a love story. Um, and I enjoyed it just as much. And then I've gone on to do uh, drama, comedy, you know, and I've loved it just as much. Um, but I think that I think that once I really, you know, get into the point where I'm making films and, and, and features like Spike Lee and Ava DuVernay and stuff like that, like Ava has her lane of um activism and um, and things like that I think that I probably more than likely will go back to my natural roots of like sci-fi just because like those are the stories that are the most um appealing to me yeah you know I'm a huge Octavia Butler fan I um oh yeah that's it right there yeah yeah, like Octavia is is the truth. I would love to bring some of her stories to life. Um, and I just think that it's really important for Black people to be seen in a world of su- the supernatural, the science fiction, the, the superheroes, the, ab- the, the supernatural abilities and whatnot. I think it's really important for us to see ourselves in that light because subconsciously it does something to you when you see someone who looks like you with extra powers or, you know, or supernatural abilities or whatever the case may be. I think that it's, you know, people like, I mean, God rest his soul, Chad, with Bozeman. Yeah, for sure. Who played Black Panther and like even Anthony Mackie, who's also, you know, Captain America in the Marvel series. And like that stuff is really important for for people to see. And, um, I think it impacts us on a subconscious level. 
a lot more than we probably think. So yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, would be down to, to be in that genre for sure. This is Catherine Weiss, artist, printmaker, community organizer, and you are listening to Studio Noise. Yeah, it makes me think of, of the film Fast Color. Uh, was kind of the same yeah. thing. Yeah, that was that was a really good one. So and that was really good. I enjoyed that too. Yeah. yeah. So you bringing up a, a point about representation, and I think that's what there's definitely going to be one of my questions in terms of. Uh, when you do go into these spaces, how much of it is re- is are you required to actively push a representation narrative into these spaces that don't necessarily have it? You know what I'm saying? Because it's like I'm, I'm sure like most of the projects are have white leads in mind or is catered towards like a mass audience, which, you know, most of people think is white people. And so they, mm-hmm. you don't always get consideration for black audiences i i brought this up um on the podcast early on early, early episodes mm-hmm. because we were talking about colin kaepernick and it's like as much as they hate that think that colin kaepernick will turn off white fans he actually activates black fans and so the black fans are spending the same money watching the same tv for the same amount of time but they never get consideration so is that the type of thing that you have to actively purposefully fight uh in your journey as a director well, you know, I think that um, I think that it's been a really good moment for for black characters in television and in film. I think that um, like I, I I think I said like about a year or so ago, I was like, man, I feel like I'm in the middle of like a renaissance for like black TV and film because there were just so many new shows and things coming out um, about black people and black stories. What I want to make sure that we continue to do is uh, have that variety of black people on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think that black people have, and you know, this is sometimes controversial, but I think black people should be able to play whoever they want to play, whether it's a villain, whether it's a good person, bad person. Um, you know, I just feel like we as artists should be allowed to to, to, to play whatever role or, or make the movie that we want. I'm a big fan of variety though. Like it can't all be like true, like make a gangster movie, but don't make 20 gangster movies. And that's all we have. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, but I think that black people should still be able to play gangsters if they want to. Um, I'm not a big fan of always having to walk in the room um, carrying your whole race on your back and you, you can't play this role because it's negative. It has a negative connotation and whatnot. I understand why. Um, I understand why people are like, okay, no, enough with these types of roles. I feel that way about slavery based movies and things like that. Like I'm, I'm just over it. Yeah. But, um, but again, it, ta- it speaks to variety and making sure that like for every slavery based movie, there's another movie to show the opposite of that. Um, you know, the free, the freedom, the freeness of the black, of black people. Um, you know, so I think it's not for me, like it's not necessarily right now, like a lack of, uh, black stories. I think that we, we've got, like, we've gotten to the point where, like I'm watching Lovecraft Country right now on yeah, HBO. Yeah. Great show. Uh, I was a big fan of Watchmen with Regina King, and like we have those types of shows that are really pushing the envelope and doing things that we've never seen on black people do on screen before, um, which is really exciting. So I'm more of a, I'm more of a, like I just condone like us just being able to be artists and do what it is we want to do, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, yeah. That, that's freedom. Like that's what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Right. That's how you're supposed to be able to, to make your own choices and use your voice however you want to supposedly. Right. <laughs> that's what mm-hmm. we, that's what we fighting for. So, that, and that brings me to um, talking about your switch from not just short film, but major TV productions. 
So you worked on ambitions. Mm-hmm. You worked on on Greenleaf, like we said. Like, what's the difference in, in going to from? I would think a more um, a more free environment creatively, where you can do kind of what you want to do, compared to a massive production of a TV serialized TV drama. Like, what's the difference between those two worlds? Yeah, yeah, it's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. <laughs> It's a huge difference because your indie movie is like it's your baby and it's you and your friends usually and mm, y'all get yeah. together doing stuff. Yeah, I ain't think about it like um, that. Yeah, it's like <laughs> you yeah. hang out with your partners. Yeah, yeah, those are your people because nine times out of ten, if y'all have decided to get together and do an indie movie together, you get along to a certain extent. <laughs> and you, right. Right. You know, you've been together for some years in the Atlanta industry, like, and you, you know, you're like, yeah, let's get together, let's do something. You know, and um, and most of the time, even before that, like the people who would come on board and join me to do a short film that I would want to do, they were people who believed in me. They were friends. They were people who, you know, who supported me. Um, so it's different when you do walk onto one of these um, television sets where most of the people don't don't even know you. Mm. Um and they, you know, they don't care that like, you know, you did this and you did that back in the day or whatever. They just like, okay, so what are you going to do here today? And, um, and, and so, you know, you're working with a lot of people who you have to earn their respect. You have to earn their trust. Uh, you have to work with them in a way that they can, that they feel like they trust you and that they feel like you're their leader. Um, as a director. So that's, that's always first and foremost, one of the challenges when you walk on a set, especially as a, as a younger black woman, um, you know, you walk on set and you, you have all these people who also want to be directors and you have to, you know, get them to a place where they can work with you and they respect you and they allow you to be the leader that you are. Um, so that's one thing. It goes from work you just working with your friends and everybody already knows you to walking on set full of strangers and having to prove yourself. Um, but then there's also creative wise, like on TV shows, you're the if you're the guest director, there's a lot of decisions that you don't make. There's a lot of creative decisions that you don't make. Right. Uh, we talked about earlier. Uh, we talked about casting being ninety percent. But like you might get there and everything's already cast or the actor that you wanted to cast, the the showrunner doesn't want to cast. They want to cast somebody else. And the showrunner is going to get that the person that they want to cast because it's their show. Right. And you're only there for eight days and they're there for the whole season. So, yeah, multiple seasons. Yeah, multiple seasons sometimes. So they have to, they have that final say. So a lot of times as a guest director, you are sort of given, like, we've already made these creative decisions. We've already decided on these locations and these people for you to work with. And you have to take that and work with it. It's it's like cooking in somebody else's kitchen. They already have the ingredients and the, and the pots and pans and you got to get in there and whip it up, you know, <laughs> like you just got to get in there and cook it your way and, and put as much of you in it as possible. But everything's already there. So, you know, sometimes with directing, that can be a little uh, that can get a little challenging sometimes because you're like, man, I would have made this creative choice and not that one. Right. But at the end of the day, you are the one who has to make it believable, you know. So if they cast an actor that you didn't really like or an actor that you feel like wasn't really that good, you still have to direct that person and make it the best that it can possibly be. You can't be like, well, I wanted so-and-so and y'all <laughs> kept it, yeah. this person. So I'm just, you know, that's on y'all. Like, yeah, you know, it's not yeah. on them. It's yeah, you on can't you be petty as about director. It. Yeah. You got to be yeah. straight up and, and deal with it like head on. You got to make it work. You, you have to make it work. So that's a big th- difference too, because in the indie world, as a director, you know, you you get all those choices. You get to choose where we shooting, what they wearing, who we casting. All of that stuff is up to you. Even more so in film, feature film, the director has a lot more creative input right, on right. um 
on different things and where to shoot and who to cast and where to be. But um, you still always have the studio or the network or whoever's really paying for it. Um, those people also have a say and you have to work with those people in a way that's professional and, you know, you have to get your point across as to why you're making certain creative decisions. Um, and that's not, a, like I said, in indie movies, if it's just you and your friends and your buddies, y'all are already on the same page anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and you just making decisions, but like, it's, it's just a different world. It's a completely different world when you step onto like a professional studio set, you know, and, and you're the director, but, you're not making all of the creative decisions by by any means, but yeah. you. But it's still up to you as to where you want to put that camera. That's always on you. You know, nobody can tell you where to put the camera. Nobody can tell you how to shoot something. Um, as a director, that's your job. And if somebody tries to say, if somebody tries to come in and start directing it for you, you can file a grievance on them or you can, you can talk to them about it and ask them not to do it again. Um, you know, but they're not supposed to do that. So there is a part of the director's job that still fully belongs to the director, but there's a lot of creative decisions that happen before we even get there sometimes. Yeah. And, and tell me about kind of that moment where you, you just described a little bit of being a young director coming on and set. I mean, you come on the set as Lynn Whitfield, it's Meryl Dangerous, it's Keith David. Like you're you're there with all of these. To me, they f- they feel like stars, right? Uh, I don't know how like the yeah, world at large. Yeah, they feel like stars to yeah. me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell tell about tell about that moment where you're on the scene and now suddenly you're in charge of Keith David as Bishop. Like what what are you what are you saying to yourself? Oh, like what are you how do you approaching it? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Like, so Greenleaf was one of my first times directing like a show of that caliber and, um, and, and working with actors of that caliber. And even though I had been on the show, um, as an associate producer and as an assistant in like from, from season one, I still looked at Lynn and whenever Lynn and Keith and then walked on stage, I was just like, wow, okay, they're here. You know, <laughs> I, I never really lost that like wowness. Yeah. So when it was time for me to direct them, um, I kind of like I w- I still had a little bit of that nervousness, but but I realized that they they needed me to be sure. They needed me to be confident. They needed me to mm. to be you know they didn't need me to be nervous. They were really like Lynn was really like, OK, so how was that? Tell me the truth. Like, you know, because it's easy to want to be like, oh, Lynn, you did a great job. Cause she <laughs> she kills every take. I mean, she kills every take. Yeah, yeah. Unless she just forgets a line or something like she absolutely kills every take. Like she's Lynn Whitfield yeah. um, and Keith David does the same thing. Um, and so it was it was me having to you know, take a deep breath um, and just get confident in myself enough to be like, okay, yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's not look at this as a fan. um, And let's look at this as a director and make sure that your actors can trust that you're going to always pull out the best performance from them. Um, You know, because I think if you do that, they, they're like, okay, great. I can trust you. I can work with you. You're not just going to tell me it was great when it could have been better. Right. You know, because um, actors can feel it. If they didn't do their best, they can feel it. Um, and if you come in like, yeah, that was great. Let's let's move <laughs> on. They're like, no, that wasn't great. You know, I could do better than that. Um, so you just kind of got to be truthful, be honest, and always, always, always just come from the story. Right. Um, and the facts of the story. Um, and I feel like that goes a long way with actors. Like if you're story based, you're not over here trying to do some formula or, you know, whatever, you know, a lot of people do, you're focused on the story, you're focused on the character and you're talking about it and and you're, you trying to get the best possible, um, scene. Uh, and I think that they can they can trust you then. But yeah, I was nervous as all out. You know, I was nervous as all get out <laughs> trying to direct Lynn Whitfield and Keith David and 
it's just um yeah but but I learned a lot from from doing so and um I think I'm even better now for it you know that's awesome that's awesome. Yeah. And, awesome. A, and a lot of times with, with actors, I'll just say this one thing with actors of that caliber, they're so good. Most of the time when you rehearse with them, you just want to see what they're going to do. You don't have to try to direct them right off the bat. Right. Just see what they're going to do, you know, cause most of the time they know what they're going to do anyway. And, um, and then you just work with them from there. You know, that's what I found. Yeah, that's awesome, yo. So, um, and as we kind of get closer to the end here, I do want to spend some time and talk about uh, CCR Storyhouse because uh, it's, you know, making these kind of programs where you are mentoring and helping other people kind of get to the level that you are. I think that's super important. I know I do that going into high schools and teach people printmaking and, and, and painting and drawing. Uh-huh. Like I'm, a, I'm an art teacher now. And so uh-huh. I, I, I think it's super important for you to do that. And how... How did you kind of develop this 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 whole story house? Well, like it all started um when like when I started uh when I started directing full time and I would have uh different people, particularly young black women, um would would approach me about me being their mentor. And I know I had some great mentors, man. One of my mentors, rest in peace. Um, he passed away right after college, right after I graduated from college. Um, but I've had another creative mentor in my life and I wouldn't have made it to where I am now if, if I didn't have mentorship. Yeah. So yeah. When, when other women ask me um, about mentorship, I want to do it. I want to show up for them. Um, but I literally had like shows booked back to back back to back to back all year. And, um, I just, I, I was like, man, if I, if I say I'm going to be someone's mentor, I really want to be able to to do it. Um, I don't want to just say it and then just disappear. Um, so I was like, okay, if I form CCR Storyhouse, that will give me a way to mentor like several people at once and be able to share my knowledge and everything with a lot of people, um, instead of me having to mentor individuals, um, on a one-on-one basis, which I just don't have the time and the day for. Um, but you know, I still just wanted to, to do it and to provide that mentorship. So I created CCR Storyhouse for that reason. And, um, and I'm still, um, I'm still working out a lot of kinks in CCR Storyhouse. I, I want it to be even more accessible, and available on a, on a bigger scale. So I have some plans on, um, kind of relaunching it in a way that will be more accessible and easy to, to use and, and, um, and affordable, you know, and something affordable to, um, something at different levels. Cause I feel like you have film students, then you have people who are already in the industry who may know a lot of the stuff that film students might still be learning. So I want to make sure there's something for everybody. Um, uh, but yeah, it came along more so for the mentorship. And what I realized was that people can have the talent and know exactly how to make a movie, but there's a lot more that goes into making it in this industry. Um, there's a certain belief in yourself you know, there's 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 a lot that has nothing to do with film that uh, that will help people to make it. And so I just wanted to be able to speak to that, too, um, because you got to be ready for this industry. You can't just come in like thinking that your talent is just going to get you all the way the whole way. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of other stuff um, to to do to be able to do, you know. That's, uh, a, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting mm-hmm. you say that. Like, how how tough uh, was your path? Like, tell us a little bit about how did you end up <laughs> getting in these positions? Oh, man, my path was tough. I ain't even going to lie. <laughs> I ain't even going to lie. It was tough, man. It was tough. It was not easy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I graduated from film school. Well, I graduated. I went to Valdosta State University. 
and got right. my bachelor's of fine arts in uh, mass media television. I graduated in 2005. And then I, I went to uh, Savannah College of Art and Design uh, for grad school um, in 2006. But then right around that time, the, the Georgia Tax Incentive um, came up and so many different films started shooting in Atlanta and Tyler Perry was shooting every week. Right. Yeah. And Will, Will Packer, Rainforest Media was shooting and all of this other stuff started coming and so I left graduate school and just started PAing. So I started like as working for free as a PA on set, and I had to work my way up all the way from being a PA to being a director. And so who, you know, I worked my way up from the very bottom of the totem pole, um, and that just wasn't easy. Um, you know, I became, uh, after I was a PA, I worked in the office a lot. I was a production secretary. I did travel. Uh, I was an on-set PA. I was an assistant to directors. I assisted uh, producers and writers. And um, I would sometimes just, you know, I would sometimes get caught in the middle of jobs where I didn't have any income mm. um, and I had to stay with a friend for a little while, you know. Um, I've never had to go off and and, um, and find a whole nother job. I think I had like a temp job for like three months once. But besides that, I was always a full-time freelance filmmaker. And there are those moments where you don't know how you're going to pay your bills. You don't know how you're going to pay your rent. You're always the person at Christmas without no gifts. Like, <laughs> you can't buy nobody no gifts and feel horrible. You yeah, know, like, oh, here, like, oh, Lord, like, here come Crystal again. <laughs> Right. Here she come with her handmade (laughs) gifts again, you know. Um, And it, it, but it takes a toll on you, especially as an adult. You know, you see all your other adult friends going on cruises, and they working on a wonderful corporate job, and they got benefits and and health insurance, (laughs) (laughs) and you're just there, like, man, I'm broke. I don't know how I'm gonna pay my rent next (laughs) month. It's hard. It is hard. Um, And sometimes, you know, you make a film and you think that's going to be your big break and something happens with that and it doesn't go quite like you thought. And now you're back to square one. Um, And, you know, there have been many days when I broke down. I just broke down. Like, when is this going to happen? You know, and how is it? You know, what what am I doing wrong? What else could I possibly do? you know, I worked for over 10 years in, in the industry, just like making my own films on the weekends and um, and and working on actual bigger movies, for you know, Monday through Friday in whatever role I could get, you know. And uh, so, yeah, it was it was really tough. It was really tough. And then it's even tougher once you actually get the break. And you got to step up to everything that you said that you are. Um, mm. That's not easy either. Right. Like suddenly, yeah. Everybody's like, okay, so you want a shot? Here's your shot. And there are millions of dollars on the table. Mm. And if you mess it up, that could be it for you. You know, if you mess it up, that could be your career. Um, that's a lot of pressure. Um, but, you know, you just have to be, you have to be, you have to persevere. You have to like, just keep going. You break down, you just got to get up and just keep going, um, keep keep putting one foot in front of the other, even when it feels like you're not making progress, uh, even when it feels like stuff just keeps going in circles. Um, you know, you just kind of know that you that that like you you are meant to do this. And um, and, and at the end of the day, you know, I've gotten nothing but great res- reviews and responses from my directing from the people who are hiring me, they, they always want to hire me again. Um, you know, and, um, so it's all good and it's all been worth it. Um, and it gets a little bit easier every day. Um, you know, once you're really doing what you're supposed to be doing, um, you know, you know, I just feel really good. I feel really alive. I feel really grateful. Um, but yeah, the journey here was really tough and, you know, full of bumps and bruises and 
tears and all that stuff. <laughs> I love, but, I love. Uh, but I feel I, good now. Yeah. yeah, I love, I love the passion that you're talking about. I think that's that's um at the heart of all of it. It's the same with with visual arts being a painter. Like you you you'll be making paintings for years and nobody's gonna like it. And um, but mm-hmm. do you stop like or do you keep going until you break through to the next level? Are you doing enough? Um, to please yourself and, and, and satisfy that own desire inside of you because it's not, you're not going to get affirmation from anywhere else but yourself sometimes. And like, yeah. even those times like we, where you talk about where you broke down, like you still came back and you still didn't give up on yeah. it. And you still like, you know, yeah. you just did what you had to do until uh, you got your shot and you definitely made the most of it. For sure. Thank you. Thank you. And And I mean, I love the analogy with the paintings because you know, even though like you might do a painting every month and nobody buys it or nobody says anything about it. And then once you break through, there's someone out there that's like, oh, my goodness, you made this painting back in yeah, back in 1995. Yeah. I want to <laughs> buy that for a million dollars. Yeah. You know, but that was the painting that you did when when you had, had a breakdown, you know, um, and thought nothing was ever going to happen. And then 10 years later, somebody wants to buy it for a million bucks, you Mm. know, and that's the way that it works. It's like all of my worst moments, my darkest moments, when I was going through certain things, all of that stuff comes back around to bless you, like in a way that is like, wow, okay, like that's what I went through that for. That's why I was going through that at the time. Um, and you know, that's why like with CCR Storyhouse, that's the type of stuff that I want to make sure that people know, because you can have all the talent in the world and all the passion in the world, but if you can't make it through those breakdowns Mm, and those dark moments, you won't make it, you know? And, um, so I want to be a voice of, you know, encouragement for people because like it's not that they need to you know it's not that they necessarily need the talent all the time is they need to be able to pick themselves up you know and keep believing in themselves and that's sometimes the hardest thing to do yeah you know yeah for sure for sure for sure mm-hmm. oh man I, I i wish we had you for like another two hours <laughs> and so and so you got so much i'm sure it's so much more you can share with us but we definitely appreciate you coming on this crystal clear films Make sure you check her out, Crystal Clear Robeson. Check her out at ccrobeson.com. Uh, where else can they find mm-hmm. you? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at ccrobeson. You can also uh, check me out at CCR Storyhouse. Um, is also on Instagram and Twitter. Um, but there's uh, at my, on my website, there's a way to sign up for CCR Storyhouse, and there's a way to uh, to get in contact to. Uh, there, so um, I'm on the web. Yes, yes, and and everybody out there looking to to get into film and movies, definitely check it out. I think it'd be a beautiful resource. So definitely looking forward to more of your work coming up. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Crystal. All right, thank you, Jay. I appreciate it. I appreciate the invite. And that's it. Another episode of Studio Noise in the Bag. Big shout out to the busy and amazing Crystal C. Rollers for coming on the show. Blessing us with all that insight. All this content that we produce is people like her right behind the lens. Making sure that we get our stories told in a good way, in a proper way. Make sure, head to her website. She has a Vimeo. She has all these like uh, videos to the short films and stuff that we talked about in the episode. I might link it in, in the podcast notes. Uh, so everybody get a chance to look at it. It's, it's pretty good stuff. So you definitely want to head over to the NBAF.org. Check out everything from the Horizon Wars, all the judges, all the winners. Uh, you get to see, like, they got some nice videos up there, too. And make sure you go ahead and drop them some coins. You know what I'm saying? Support these organizations that support your black arts. That's keeping the things like this podcast going and keeping things like this artist grant they had going during COVID. Make sure people stay up. So, you know, we definitely got to show love and appreciation for that. And it's your first time listening to Studio Noise. We got a whole archive, 100 episodes full of all the creators that you want to know, that you need to know. Make sure you go ahead and check that out. And you can listen on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, wherever you listen to podcasts, we'll be right there. 
And if you're so inclined, if you really like what you hear, because I think, you know, it's pretty good stuff. Why don't you go ahead and hit that subscribe button? Why don't you go ahead, drop us a little review, put five stars on it. You know what I'm saying? Get us pumped up in the charts. Let everybody know about the noise. And as always, we want you to holler at us. And you know you can. Just go on to studionoisepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on IG, uh, shoot us a DM, share the episodes, do all that good stuff. Yo, that's at Studio Noise Podcast. You can find my co-host, Dickie Jazz, at Nigga Star Supreme. Don't forget that dot. And of course, you can find your boy anytime at J Barber Studio on all your social medias. To all my artists out there, now is the time. If you didn't know, it's a time where everything is slowed up, where nothing's really going on. Now's the time for you to get in that studio, to focus on your craft. Get your thing going. Develop that new body of work. Put that new painting that you've been thinking about for so long. Make that new, new stuff. So when the world opens back up, you'll be more than ready, baby. You ready to make some noise. That's what I'm talking about. It's studio noise, baby. We'll holler at you. Peace. <laughs>